kids can meet in the back for the children's sermon. As they're going back there, I'll invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 12. As I think about this passage, I'm reminded of one of the lessons I learned from my father-in-law in business, and it was this. Find the best advisors available, and then listen to them. Sadly, neither of those happened in this text, but we'll unpack that a bit as we look there. Now kids, I want you to listen. You're going to hear about a king named Rehoboam, and that's a funny, long-sounding name. But go beyond the name, and you're going to hear that Rehoboam made a foolish decision. I want you to listen for why he made that foolish decision, and I want you to think about how can we make wise decisions, all right? Now, as we prepare to look to this text, I want us to pray for a moment, and then I'm going to teach for a minute just before we look to the text and explain where we are in this passage, okay? Let's let's first uh, bow in prayer. Father, as we look to this passage, we are in desperate need of our true counselor, the Holy Spirit. And so would you grant us the blessing of your presence as you pour your spirit out upon us in abundance. Teach us from your word. Draw our hearts into this word that, it, that we might see how you are applying it to our lives. And through it all, would you, would you draw us ever more closely, ever more dearly to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, first a teaching moment, if I could. I want to consider the context of this passage because this is a, this is a pivotal moment in the course of, of Scripture. And, and so as I read it, I want you to understand why it is so pivotal. You think about it in the timeline of Scripture, or as we sometimes say, the timeline of redemptive history. What is happening here that will set up the action in the rest of the Bible? Now, as we think about the Bible, it is, it is the story of redemption that is told in four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Now, those first two chapters are taught in the first three chapters of the Bible, creation and fall. But importantly, right on the heels of the fall, the Lord introduces that third chapter of redemption that extends for the rest of Scripture, and we actually live in that chapter, the chapter of redemptive history, uh, the chapter of redemption that spans redemptive history. Now, that redemption that He promised, actually in the third chapter of Genesis, was of a Redeemer. The Redeemer is Jesus Christ. He is the one who would come, who would defeat evil and save His people from their sin. The Bible continues. We see that that promise of a Redeemer is clarified later in that it would come through a family, the family of Abraham. Further, in Scripture we see that the family would grow to become a nation. And the Redeemer would come through a nation, the nation of Israel. 
We talk a lot about Israel, but what we're going to see in this text is that the nation of Israel is about to divide into two nations. A northern kingdom that will be Israel and a southern kingdom that will be Judah. That northern kingdom of Israel will be led by a king that we will see in this text, Jeroboam. The southern kingdom led by Rehoboam. Now, this is a freebie, but I remember that because Jeroboam starts with a J, Jersey starts with a J, and Jersey's up north. Jeroboam is the northern king, okay? That's a freebie. But here's where it gets confusing. We think of Israel rightly as the people of God, and yes, as we see the kingdom divided, we'll see here and in the rest of the Old Testament that the Lord sent prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. But the Redeemer, the promised one of God, is not going to come through the northern kingdom of Israel. He's going to come through the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom will start out to be led by Jer- Jeroboam, but there will not be one good king in that line. And ultimately, the kingdom of Israel would be destroyed by the Assyrians. And the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament, they are the result of the intermarriage between those Assyrians and the northern kingdom of Israel. Southern kingdom would have a few good kings interspersed along the way. So they'd last a little longer than Israel. But eventually the Babylonians would destroy them. And that would be the work of the Lord. And he would take his people from Jerusalem into exile into Babylon, but he'd later bring them back. They would rebuild the temple, they would rebuild Jerusalem, and that would set up the transition into the New Testament. All of it happens here. This division happens here. And as I read this text for you, it may sound a little confusing. So I wanted to give you that high-level overview so you understand why this is so important. But understand this also. We're not here for a history lesson. We're not. We're here because the Lord our God is speaking to us through His Word. We're going to apply that Word to our lives today. So let us look there. Now, you're going to see in your bulletin it starts in 1 Kings 12, but that misses an important transition in 1 Kings 11:41. So I'll start there. Friends, this is the Word of God, the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And and Rehoboam, excuse me, his son, reigned in his place. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again. 
So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet still alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men and gave the, the, the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, <coughs> excuse me, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilionite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam said to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. This indeed is the word of the Lord. I know it's a long text. But in that text, there's a, there's a tragic irony. The book of Proverbs is uh, the book of wisdom. And much of Proverbs is actually written by Solomon, Rehoboam's father. The book of Proverbs opens by saying, the Proverbs of Solomon, 
son of David, king of Israel. He goes on to tell us that those Proverbs are given that we might know wisdom. Looking a little bit further in Proverbs chapter 1, the text tells us Solomon's audience, his audience and his purpose. Proverbs 1, verse 8 and verse 10, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Rehoboam is his father's son. But the problem is Rehoboam here in this text proves that, that rather than the way of wisdom written out for him in Proverbs, he chose the path of folly. That's part of the tragic irony, but it's not the full extent. You see, the conflict uh, that we read about here in this text, it was actually teed up by Solomon's own self-centered foolishness. You see it early in the text. Rehoboam came to, to Shechem essentially to be coronated king. Shechem was an ancient and important city in, in Israel, and and the nation gathered there for this coronation ceremony. But as they did so, they came with what seems to be a reasonable request. Verse 4, we see that request. They come to, to Rehoboam and say, Your father made our yoke heavy, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Apparently Solomon's reign, particularly in the later years of that reign, didn't so much resemble the freedom of the promised land, but more of the bondage of Egypt. They lived under a regime of forced labor that was directed according to the wishes of the king. And the yoke of his leadership had grown very, very heavy. So they came to Rehoboam, and they put voice to their pain, calling on their new king to lead righteously. It's a reasonable request. And, and in verse 5, it, it, it sounds as if there is a glimmer of wisdom in his response. You see, when we're faced with a big decision, a big momentous life-changing decision, it's not wise to speak hastily. It's wise to take a moment to consider the request before you to seek wise counsel. Rehoboam does that. And so maybe there's hope for a brighter tomorrow. It seems like Rehoboam's following the playbook that has been given him by his father in the book of Proverbs. He seeks out that counsel. Now, let me ask you for a moment. If you need advice... You've got a big decision before you. Who is it that you seek out for counsel? Do you seek out those who have been there and, and done that, those who've got the battle scars to prove it, who will offer you honest opinions? Do you seek out those who will challenge you when and where you need to be challenged? Or... Do you surround yourselves with counselors whom you know will agree with you? Who will give you permission to do what it is that you've wanted to do all along? Rehoboam actually heard from both. 
question is, to whom will he listen? First, the old men came. They had been around the block. They had wisdom. And they told Rehoboam that a true leader is a servant. Call him to serve the people and they'll serve you back. Be thoughtful and temperate with your words and they will listen to you. They will listen to your wise counsel. It sounds indeed like wise counsel they are giving him. But then there's a second group. The young men. His peers. They lacked the benefit of experience, both in terms of the wisdom of years and in terms of the connection that was needed with the masses. You see, those peers, they were both young and privileged. They couldn't relate to the people whom Rehoboam was called to lead. And so their counsel was very different Rehoboam, they gathered around and, and said, you are the king, you're the master, you're the boss. Your job is to demand from them, to expect from them. Don't for one second let up. Don't for one second show an inkling of weakness. It's conflicting counsel from two very different groups with two very different perspectives and two very different motivations. The choice that they essentially put before Rehoboam was this, serve or be served. On some level, for us, it's the choice that we face each and every day. It's the choice we face when we make big decisions in life. It's the choice that we have to make in the dailiness of family life. Will we serve or will we be served? The answer to that requires wisdom. But that wisdom is available to all. It's not a wisdom that is a factor of age. It's available to young and old because the wisdom required to answer that question is a matter ultimately of Christ-rootedness. It comes to all through our union in Christ. Well, that's the advice before Rehoboam. And so he gathers the people back together. And sadly, he offers a foolish response. Rather than serve, Rehoboam chose to be served. We see it in verses 13 and 14. And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. It's a foolish response based on foolish counsel that's founded on a foolish process. If we look back to verse 9, we see that there's a, there's a subtle shift. So subtle, it's, it's easy for us to miss, but with the turn of a pronoun, Rehoboam tips his hand and shows us where his allegiance is. In verse 9, Rehoboam puts a different question to the young men. What do you advise that we answer this people? We. 
Rehoboam is now associating himself with the young men. The young men are not detached advisors. They are the group that Rehoboam has totally, totally associated himself with. They are the yes men that are surrounding him. Not a group of wise counselors who will challenge him where he needs to be challenged, but the group that will tell him what he wants to hear. Here's the thing. This group of young men don't merely tell him what he wants to hear. They also tell him in the manner in which he wants to hear it, how he wants to hear it. They stroke his ego. You tell that group of people that your little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. His translators possibly done us a favor they've veiled the actual language that's given here to keep us from blushing you can use your imagination but they're playing on his foolish macho pride they're egging him on in a manner that will fuel his ego and fuel the foolishness you know what Rehoboam wanted to hear. And so he joined in the chorus, responding harshly. But he didn't just respond with foolish words, he responded with foolish actions. You see, these are God's chosen people, and he's their king. He's the king called by God to lead him, but in his leadership, there are echoes of Solomon. He's not acting like a righteous king, he's acting like Pharaoh bringing his people into further bondage, further oppression. The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. And in that, there is a warning for the parents in the room. There is a warning for the leaders in the room. You see, our kids, those whom we're tasked to lead, they're not going to listen to what we say as much as what we do. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs to give his son wisdom. His actions were very different. And Rehoboam followed not the words of Proverbs, but the actions of his father, neglecting his teaching on, on wisdom. The book of Proverbs contrasts the way of wisdom with the way of folly or foolishness. Tim Keller writes about that foolishness. When he writes about Proverbs defining fools as people who so habitual who are so habitually out of touch with the reality that they make life miserable for themselves and for those all around them. Proverbs one seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Rehoboam, he's out of touch. He's out of touch with the needs of his people, and more importantly, he is out of touch with the holiness of God. Instead, he's absorbed in his own self-importance and desire. And yet the text makes clear that the Lord our God is not caught off guard by his foolishness. There's a, there's a certain symmetry in this passage you might notice it in your Bibles, verses 1 through 5. They speak to Rehoboam's decision, but 
not 1 through 5, 1 through 15. But verse 15, it concludes that section with the discussion of the sovereignty of God. The second section, verses 16 through 24, speak of the divided kingdom, but it too ends in verse 24 with a discussion of the sovereignty of God. We read it in verse 15 when we see that all of this it's a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. Turn of affairs, it's a, it's a little plot twist. But who is it brought by? It's brought by the Lord. Now, many of us struggle with that notion. We struggle wondering, how can God be sovereign over sin? Is God the author of sin? No. No, rest assured, our hearts are perfectly proficient at authoring sin. But God sovereignly uses our sin. And we see that described in the progression in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that all know about God, but we, because of our own sinful desires, suppress that knowledge of God. And as we continue to suppress that knowledge of the truth of God, He begins to give us over to our desires. In other words, the punishment for sin is more sin. Rehoboam's sin is his desire for self, and the Lord is giving him over to that desire. And in so doing, Rehoboam's sin is bringing about the consequences that the Lord has already ordained. A kingdom divided. This is the moment that Jeroboam has been waiting for. And he really didn't have to do all that much. He just had to sit back and wait for the kingdom to come to him. And Israel sealed the deal when they responded in verse 16. What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. We get it, don't we? They're frustrated. They're frustrated with Rehoboam. They're frustrated with his selfish antics. Who wants to sit back and take this kind of treatment? Who wants to sit back and take this kind of oppression? We get it. But understand what is going on here. Rehoboam's choice was to serve or be served. But the people also had a choice. Their choice was to cling to the promises of God or take matters into their own hands. Verse 18 is, is actually telling on both fronts. You see, Rehoboam chose very clearly to be served. He sent the slave master Adoram to the northern kingdom to oppress the people. Yeah, his choice was clear. He chose to be served. But the people's choice was also clear. What did they do to that taskmaster, to adore him? They stoned him to death. They killed him in cold blood. Now, look, to wrap all this text up, Judah hears of this, these events and they gather for war, 180,000 of them, but finally they listen to the word of God. The Lord said, this is my doing. You go back home. 
and they did. War was averted, but there was no peace in the land. And the refrain, this was the Lord's doing. All right, here's the deal. We said we're not here for a history lesson. We've got to set it up from the text. But this text speaks to us. And so what are we to do with this passage? What are we to learn from it here today? Now, let's acknowledge it's confusing. Because we want a story to be clear, don't we? Do you remember the day in Hollywood? It's actually not this way anymore. But remember the day in Hollywood where they put white hats on the good guys and black hats on the bad guys, and you knew who to root for, and you knew who to model your life after? We, lo- we long for those days, don't we? Give us a clear story. Give us somebody to cheer for and somebody to follow. But let me just give you a little hint. Jesus is always the one for us to follow. Jesus is always the one for us to model our lives after. And this text actually points very clearly to him because Jesus is the king that we have longed for. Jesus is the one who provides the justice that we do not find in this text and that we long for in our own lives. So what are we to do with this text and with that longing? There's a sense in which the people's cry in verse 16 is our cry. They cry out, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in Jesse. They desire a portion, but all they got was oppression. We know this struggle. We actually heard it. We actually confessed it earlier in the service. In our confession of sin, we looked to Psalm 73, and that is the psalmist's cry there. The psalmist in Psalm 73 is is crying out, Lord, I have done what you've told me to do, and yet I suffer. And those evil people, they've got a life of ease. It's all working out for them. Why them and not me? Why am I suffering oppression? And we know that cry. We live it day in and day out. We experience it in the workplace. We experience it in our world. We long for a portion. We long for an inheritance But how have we defined them? How have we defined that portion? How have we defined that inheritance? And when we falsely define them thinking they're defined with the material things of this world and a life of ease, we look around us and all we see and experience is oppression. So what then? What do we do with the longing? What do we do with the portion? Rather than clinging to the promises of God, the people in the text, they took matters into their own hands. And I know that this interpretation that I'm offering to you today may not be popular. We want to cheer them on for rising up against the oppressors. We want to cheer them on for fighting back, for saying we're not going to take it anymore. But here's the problem. In so doing, they actually separated themselves from the inheritance. And we will soon see that that separation was complete because their kings 
turned after the false gods, and so did the people. They went whole hog after the worship in the high places. They went whole hog after the false pagan gods of the nations around them. They rejected the house of David, and they rejected the way of salvation. Oh, make no mistake, there remained a remnant. Lord will remind Elijah of that very soon. But the nation as a whole rebelled against God. I get it. I get it. We're sitting here thinking, well, what do you expect them to do? They were oppressed, right? That's right, they were. And God does not condone the oppression. Make no mistake about it. But the testimony of Scripture is clear, even if it is unpopular. The Lord calls His people to cling to His promises and be instruments of redemption in the lives of others, even when it is difficult. Even when the workplace is hard, the Lord calls us to remain. He calls us to remain in the hard place and be an instrument of redemption. No, that doesn't mean remain in an abusive, physically abusive, abusive otherwise relationships. No, he's not saying that, but far too often we extend it and look for ease. There's an odd and ironic connection in this text between Rehoboam and the people. One was an oppressor, and one was the oppressed. But ultimately, and in different ways, they both were focused on self. Rehoboam listened to the false wisdom of his young friends, the young friends who told him what he wanted. People did the same. They followed a leader who told them what they wanted. We're tempted to do the same, aren't we? To chase after other voices until we finally find that one who will affirm me. And we do it because our hearts are restless. So what are we to do? We cling to the promises of God. In the 4th century, St. Augustine wrote a very modern text titled, confessions and in saint augustine's confessions he wrote a famous line you have made us for yourself O lord and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you the people of israel could find no rest the king burdened them with a heavy yoke but king jesus is the good king King Jesus is the wise king. King Jesus is the righteous king. And to a people who are burdened by the oppression of a fallen world and more importantly burdened by the weight of their own sin, King Jesus offers a gracious invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, to a people who have a heavy yoke, he says this, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's an invitation 
that's founded on a promise, one that we can cling to. The promise of a redeemer, remember, who would defeat evil and save his people. Jesus made good on that promise. He is the good king who bore the burden of our sin on himself on the cross and in exchange he has given us life. And so brothers and sisters know this, true wisdom ultimately is not a matter of age, young or old. It's a matter of clinging to the promises of God by clinging to Jesus. Christ church, let us be a people. Jesus, we, we praise you that you are the long-promised Redeemer, that you have saved us from our sin, that you are the good and righteous King. As I pray that our wisdom would be founded in you and that you would give us hearts that would cling to you come what may. Do this we ask in your name. Amen.